Our Father, we bless you and we thank you for these moments together today. I'm grateful all over again today that you are a speaking God and we come with recognition that your word has power and authority that if we pause and consider it will enter in and disrupt and transform. And so we're saying to you today together, would you just affirm this in your own heart? Would you say, Holy Spirit, come and speak to me through this word. God, my request in this time is that as a result of studying this text together, that you would, you would call us to be the sort of people that relinquish our lives, that we open up our hands and lay our lives down before you, that you would lead us into that through this text. We need your help. Would you lead and guide, convict and encourage, do as only you can do. We thank you in advance for what's in store. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our third week in a series that we're calling Hungry for God, an exploration of moments when communities of people throughout the scriptures gather together in prayer and fasting. What we know is that prayer and fasting are private disciplines. Jesus says, go back into your closet and pray, fast in secret. But there are moments, pointed moments for particular reasons where whole communities gather together and they engage in this sort of work all at once. And so we're exploring those passages throughout the scripture to learn from them, to glean from them, even as we prepare our hearts for a season of prayer and fasting in the month of February. We have talked about repentance. In Jonah chapter 3, we saw that people gather in repentance to lay down their former wicked ways and say, God, I want to turn away from this. In Joel, we saw that it's not just repentance, but it's a return to the heart of God. And this week, we're going to see in the book of Esther that Prayer and fasting community is paving the way for relinquishing our lives, for laying the whole of our lives down. This is where we're going to interact today. I'm going to invite you as we study this passage to, to play the role of detective with me. We're going to try to solve a mystery together. Let me tell you a little bit about Esther, the context of what we're jumping into, so that you can understand the mystery that we're going to try to solve together. Esther is an exiled Jewish woman among a group of exiled Jewish people. They're living in the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire has conquered, coming on the heels of the Babylonian Empire. If you were here with us this last year, you know we preached through the book of Daniel when the people of God are living in Babylon. This is after that. And it's different than that. Because Daniel and his friends, they were all bold and faithful. They wanted to be noticed as different and faithful to Yahweh, even in a distant land. But we're going to interact with an interesting character in the book of Esther. It's a woman that has kept a very low profile. She's different than Daniel in the fact that she doesn't want anybody to know that she's Jewish. She has blended in completely. Uh, what we know of her to, to this point in the story is that she's orphaned. She's exiled. She's been raised by a family member named Mordecai. And when the king became upset with his previous queen, he hosted a nationwide beauty contest to, to find his next queen. And Esther won. Esther is the most beautiful woman in the land, and she is now King Xerxes' bride. She is over the Persian Empire, but no one knows that she's Jewish. What we know of Queen Esther to this point 
is that she is not concerned with faithfulness to Yahweh in any particular way, that she is a beauty queen, and that she is mostly thus far engaged in activity that is around comforting herself or protecting or preserving herself. She's just trying to survive. That's who this person is. But by the end of our chapter today, this beauty queen will be a heroic queen. Something happens in this chapter. And the invitation that I want to extend to you is, is to come and to be a detective with me. And what we want to try to figure out is what could transform someone from being somewhat self-involved, insulated from the pain of the world and only about themselves to postured for kingdom risk for the good of others. Because quite frankly, we don't want to just understand this about Esther. We're asking God, I'm inviting you to go on this journey as a detective in hopes that we might discern how we might go through a similar transformation. The places where we're hunkered down, insulated, just trying to survive or to protect ourselves. What would it take for us to be transformed, positioned and postured, willing to risk for the benefit and the beauty of others? Queen Esther as we follow in her footsteps, will lead us down that path. And what you will receive in this text is an invitation that is uncomfortable. An invitation to pry open your fingers and to relinquish your life. To stop clinging to it, but to lay it down for the benefit of others. This is the journey that we're on this morning. So enter at your own risk. How do we move from insulated and being about ourselves to postured for kingdom risk? The first step in that journey is that we have to stop sidestepping distress. The first thing that has to happen if we move from an insulated life to a life that's making a real kingdom impact in the world is that we have to stop sidestepping heartache, disappointment, discouragement, pain, loss. All of the distress in the world around us, if, if we're honest, we so frequently try to arrange our lives to sidestep it. That has to stop if we're going to be the sorts of people that are used in power by God. What we see in this text is that that journey kind of, it starts with someone that's willing to make some noise around the pain. It's almost like a prophetic voice that steps in and forces Esther to come present to the brokenness of the world. This is the role that her family member Mordecai plays. Pay attention to the way that he grieves when the word goes out. At the end of chapter three, the, an edict is made by the king, the Persian king, that all Jewish people should be killed in the land. And we pick up the story in chapter four and verse one. Pay attention to how Mordecai responds. It says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and in ashes. You see... Esther is beginning to go on a journey and it starts with someone close to her that is beginning to make noise around injustice and, and it's bringing it to the, to the surface. There's this idea that she actually lives in the king's courts and she's unaware of what's going on. 
there, there's just this reality that our wealth and position and power to whatever degree we have it is, is capable of insulating us from real pain in the world. Esther doesn't even know what's going on, even though she lives in the courts that are making these decrees. But her family member, Mordecai, goes out to the city streets and he starts making a racket. Did you hear it? A really loud, bitter cry, wearing sackcloth and ashes at the king's gate. He's just going, no, this is not the way it's supposed to be. He is making it really uncomfortable for everyone else. Oftentimes, the journey from being insulated to making a real impact, it starts with somebody that begins to agitate, that causes you to actually see things are broken. You know, this is the weekend where we celebrate the life of Martin Luther King Jr. That's what he did. He went out into the center of the city and he made noise around an injustice, around race relations in our country historically. And and he began to speak in such a way that people had to take note. He was playing a role like Mordecai, going to the king's gate and saying, I'm going to make noise until people pay attention. There are different people in our country and our society and our lives that play this role for us. I read a book this last year called Something Needs to Change by David Platt. David Platt has played this role for the church at large. And and he wrote a book. This is a book that's largely about looking into the pain of those that are living in deep poverty around the globe and those that don't have access to the good news of the gospel around the globe. Saying, what if we paused and paid attention to the fact that there are billions of people today that are living on two dollars a day or less and there are billions of people today that don't have access to the name of Jesus they've never heard of him and they don't know anyone that knows him and I read this book as David Platt tells these stories and takes you into it and he just if you've ever heard him preach or you've read something by him you you get the sense that he's kind of like Mordecai he's just going to make noise about it you know And I got done with the book and I was like, man, this is all this stuff about people dying of hunger and people that don't know Jesus. It's kind of bumming me out, David. Like, I kind of wish you'd just stop talking about it. Because the truth is, our natural gut reaction, if we're honest, like when confronted with real brokenness in the world, the poverty that surrounds us, the pain that is shot through in relationships right in our own networks, all of the distress and the anguish in the world, our natural gut level human reaction is how can I silence it as quickly as possible so that I don't have to deal with all of this stuff that it brings up in me anymore. And that's exactly what Esther does. Look at verse four with me. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. What we're going to learn in just a few verses is that she doesn't even know what Mordecai is upset about yet. All that she knows is that this is distressing for me because this guy that's close to me is kind of creating a scene. (laughs) She's like, on the sly sends him a set of clothes and like, can you just put some regular clothes on and chill out a little bit? This is distressing for me. And, and if we're honest, when confronted with real brokenness, like brokenness in our own families, brokenness in the relationships close to us, brokenness in the world, that 
we want to figure out how can I leverage quick solutions to silence it and just get back to comfortable and happy. It's, it's our natural inclination. And what we learn from Esther is this, the degree to which you have any education, position, power, wealth, that option is on the table for you. The degree to which you have wealth or position or some sort of posture in the world, some sort of power, you can leverage that to insulate yourself such that you never touch real pain in the world. You can sidestep distress the rest of your life. Esther is sleeping with the king and she doesn't know that her own people are going to be eradicated. She is so insulated from the pain, she doesn't see it. She doesn't know. And the question is, what are we going to do In this space, the space where the noise starts to come up, the things where you recognize the distress and the brokenness in the world, what are you going to do with it? Because Mordecai refuses the change of clothes from Esther and he continues to press, she begins to make a different decision. This is the way that often works for us. Someone in our life that continues to kind of raise the call on the high calling, what God's doing in the world, the pain around us, that someone keeps bringing, and all of a sudden we start to go, ah, It might even be a sermon like this. You start to go, I feel like I've squirmed away from this long enough. A decision has to be made to stare into the abyss, to stop sidestepping distress. This is what Esther does in verse five. Look, she goes, okay, I can't just make it go away. I'm gonna have to understand what's happening. Verse five. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to tend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. See, this is the first time she's actually finding out what's going on. She's like, all right, I better find out why is he so worked up. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in the front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Haman is one of the king's counselors who's kind of working behind the scenes because of his, his anti-Semitic leanings to destroy the Jews. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf for her people. You see, it's in this moment where Esther says, okay, I'm going to take inventory of what's going on. I'm going to stop sidestepping the distress. I'm going to peer into the abyss. And I'm going to say, hey, what's, what's the real issue at hand? This is where things start to change in our lives. If you're not careful, you will constantly hamstring your journey as a disciple of Jesus by arranging your life to stay comfortable. Every time something uncomfortable presents itself, if we always try to arrange ourselves to avoid the hard conversation, avoid from pressing in where we're most needed, avoid from the heartache that's present in our world and around our globe, if we're always trying to rearrange, we will hamstring the process of understanding what it is to grow into the the headship of Jesus in our lives. And in this moment, she makes a different decision. She peers into it. It's like a decision my friend Mark Womack, he sits on the front row, he sits right here in the 9 a.m. service, that's why I'm pointing at Mark, is, was just here at the 9. And many of you know Mark, he works at the 
at the Kroger right by where I live, over by NRG Stadium. And he came to our prayer gathering this last month, and he shared that something is happening in him, that he has shown up to work there for almost 20 years, mostly thinking about himself, just how to get through his shift. But as the Lord continues to work in his heart, he's, he's showing up and going, there's a lot of people hurting that shop here and around here. And so he showed up at our prayer gathering and he had the names of people and the stories of people because he's slowing down and he's looking at the distress around him. And now he's starting to invite the community to pray and to be a part of it. That's what we're talking about. Or we're talking about like my friend Madeline Kosky, who worshiped here for some time and then raised her hand to go to the Bengali people in India to share the gospel because as she kept hearing about the reality of unreached people groups, that there are people on the planet that don't know Jesus exists. Something that began to change in her heart as she studied and paid attention to that. And all of a sudden she said, I have to do something. Now it's one of my favorite things. I get the weekly updates from her of sitting in, she's sending photos of her sitting in the homes of Bengali people, opening the scriptures and sharing with them the good news of Jesus. It started when she stopped sidestepping distress and she said, oh, this is real. This is an issue in the world. You see, the journey from being insulated and self-involved to making a kingdom impact starts with a decision that has to be made at a heart level that I'm going to stop sidestepping distress. I'm going to pay attention to it. I'm going to look at it. And then once you do, the second reality that has to become the case is this. You have to count the cost. Because if you stop sidestepping distress, it begins to call out to you. It begins to call for change. This is what's happening for Esther. Mordecai sends word and he says, so you have to go plead with the king that he would change his edict. And right after that, she engages in some really honest, good work. She counts the cost. Look at verse 9 through 11. Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces, they know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without having been called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. The call is made for Esther to go and to petition the king. And she immediately considers, what would this really cost me? She knows that this king has a lot of women. He's got concubines. He's surrounded by women. So for her to not be called in 30 days doesn't mean that the king is not involved with anyone. It means that perhaps she is no longer the woman that he desires. This is the ugliness of of being in exile in the Persian courts. And she's there thinking, this man's my husband. I'm the queen, but he hasn't called on me. I don't know if he wants me around anymore. The last queen he got frustrated with and he said, I'll never see her again and wiped Vashti out. So now she's going, if I show up unannounced, uninvited, listen, Mordecai, this could cost me my life. She's counting the cost and recognizing that this, in fact, is a very costly ask. I just think it's really important on our own journey towards 
engaging in kingdom risk, that as you start to pay attention to the distress and the heartache around you, the injustice and the brokenness in the world that God would invite you to be a part of, a a part of the solution in those areas, that as soon as your heart starts to beat fast for something, you start to be aligned with God's passions, you better pause and count the cost. We have to be people that avoid rosy optimism. I've walked with many friends, for instance, that have stepped into foster care, the foster care system. And that may be something where God's calling to you as you recognize, as you peer into the abyss, that there are some 2,000 children in Harris County alone that are filtering through the foster care system in need of home. Oftentimes bouncing from house to house with all that they own in the world in a plastic bag over their shoulder. When we pause and we consider that that's happening in our city, And that God's heart is for those little ones. It begins to call to to us. Some of us start to think, maybe I could be part of the solution. But right at that moment, we have to count the cost. We can't run in with rosy optimism of like, oh, this child is going to be so thankful that I showed up and I'm their rescuer. And they're just going to call me mommy and daddy and tell me. We're inviting heartache near Like we're going to absorb the pain and perhaps even the generational pain that this child is carrying in emotionally unaware sort of ways into our home. And as I've walked with friends that have done this, they have to be aware on the front end. They can't walk in with rosy optimism of, oh, this is going to be this beautiful story. This is going to be really hard. Your family will never be the same. We count the cost. We, We count the cost if it's, if it's foster care, if it's we're just going to reposition our family's life to be on mission together, or I'm going to rework my budget to strain towards generosity in new and fresh ways for the needs in this city and beyond. Whatever it is where God starts to unearth things and call you to transform, we have to recognize my life won't be the same if I really respond to the needs. It won't. And Esther does some honest assessment. She counts the cost. And listen, friends, I I don't want there to be any question. Jesus is calling to you. The God of the universe is calling you by name, inviting you in, and the call is to come and die. It's costly. We have to count the cost. But then right on the heels of it, we consider the alternative. We count the cost and then we consider the alternative. The cost is high. We go, oh no, my life will never be the same. If I really peer into the abyss and say, God, send me, my life will never be the same. But but what Mordecai does for Esther is he says, before you count the cost and walk away because it's too costly, would you consider the alternative? And I want you to hear the way he asked her to do that good and hard work in verses 12 through the first part of 14. It says, they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai told them to reply to her. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you're going to escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Do you hear it? Mordecai is not wringing his hands. Right right now it feels, by just looking at this story at at the surface level, 
It looks like the well-being of God's people and God's redemptive story that's been marching forward through generations, it looks like it's hanging by a thread. One orphaned, exiled woman who's living in the king's courts, if she doesn't speak up, all of God's people are going to be eradicated. We're like, oh, it feels like we're barely hanging on. And Mordecai speaks into the system and he goes, listen, this isn't dependent on you. The redemptive story of God is going to march forward no matter what. He's not going to be stopped. The question is this, are you going to miss the opportunity to play a part? That's what he says to her. He says, consider the alternative. God's still going to deliver his people and you're going to get passed by. It's like God's kingdom purposes are this train that is running down the tracks of history and it has been century after century, millennia after millennia, and nothing is going to stop it. And here we are standing on the platform and what Mordecai is saying is you can either just watch it pass by and miss the adventure of your life, the joy of your life, power and fullness pass by, and you can stand here and you can be comfortable, you can be superficially happy, and live your powerless life until you die. You can do that. Or you can be a part. And then he follows it up in the second half of verse 14 with, with our third who knows question. The last three weeks, each text has had a who knows. And this one is equally as powerful and generative as the other two. In verse 14b, what he says is this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's going to Esther. You thought your beauty was just about you. You thought your position in the, in the, in the throne and the kingdom was, was just about your pleasure. You've been delivered. Everything's good for you. He's got, what if all of the things you've been entrusted with from the time you were born, what if it was all meant to be leveraged for the good of others? Who knows, maybe, just maybe, right now, where you live, the job you have, the money in your bank account, maybe none of it's yours. And maybe all of it has been entrusted to you for a time like this. Do you feel the weight of the question as he puts it before her? He's saying, consider the alternative. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've got a, a lunch scheduled later in the week. You don't know who you're getting to have lunch with, but you know it's really important and you need to be there on time. So there you are, it's noon, you sit down to local foods, you've got your crunchy chicken sandwich in front of you because why would you order anything else? And, and then in walks your, your lunch guest and it's future you. It's you 800 years from now. A weird thought experiment, stay with me. Future you sits down across from the table and says, hey, we've got an hour. What do you want to talk about? I've been letting this play out. I've been sitting at that table this week. I keep going back and, and I've been wondering, what would future me say? Like where my life has become a, a complete thing and it's placed in the backdrop of history as it's continued to march forward and now from hundreds of years hence, looking back in light of God's glory and what he's done. and Future me, I think, would say two things to me. I think he would say, you are so concerned about so many things that don't matter. 
Like you spend so much time and mental energy and hand-wringing worried about things that don't really matter. And you are so unconcerned about things that really, really matter. I think lunch with future me would be like a, a glass of cold water in the face. Going, ah, we've got a minute on this little speck of dust that's whirling around the fiery globe that is the sun. Like you've just got a few more rotations. And I think what Mordecai is saying to Esther is would you consider the alternative? That you use all of your wealth and your influence and your education and your position and your power to insulate yourselves from what really matters. Consider that that's what you make your life about. Consider the alternative. And when you do, the cost, the cost becomes minimal. It shrinks in your sight. Yes, it will cost you your life. Ah, but how else are you going to spend it? You see, she stops sidestepping distress. She counts the cost. She considers the alternative. And then she's ready to take a prayerful plunge. This is the moment, if, if this is a movie that's unfolding and we're watching it, this is the moment where the music starts to swell. The beauty queen who's been just about herself, she spends a year in spa treatment in preparation for meeting King Xerxes. Six months on certain oils, six months on certain perfumes. I mean, that's been her story. And now all of a sudden, the beauty queen steps forward as like the heroic delivering queen. Something happens in her soul. Listen for it with me in verses 15 to 17. Then Esther, this is right on the heels, right, of considering the alternative, going, who knows, maybe for such a time as this. It says, then Esther told them, reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women, we will do the same. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. To this point in her story, she has only and always obeyed Mordecai. All of a sudden, she is now on the throne saying, Mordecai, go and do it, and he's obeying her. There's this interesting transition. She steps into the authority that God has given to her to leverage it for the good of the kingdom. She all of a sudden is saying, even if it costs me my life, I am resolute, I am settled. My life, I am going to be postured for kingdom risk because it's a moment in time that God has entrusted to me uniquely. She's in. And I want you to notice the role that communal fasting plays right there at the end. Did you see it? This is another moment, one of those unique moments in the story of God's people where everybody is united in fasting. And it's almost as if, as she's receiving the invitation to relinquish her life, to lay it down, to pry open the fingers and go, I'm not going to cling to it anymore. It was never mine to begin with. It's almost as if the three days of fasting for the whole community was like a dress rehearsal. You get it? Like, they're fasting, they're being stripped of all of their strength. They're empty and they're low, such that she's prepared to go, ah, oh, yes, 
my life is poured out. Fasting is preparing her to relinquish her life. And even as we're preparing our hearts for this season of prayer and fasting, what we're talking about is repentance and returning to the heart of God for the purpose of saying, and by the way, God, as we're stripped and hungry and together as a community going, who knows? Maybe a moment like this, God's calling a people to have hearts that are on fire for him. What might he do? And in that place, we're preparing ourselves to say, and by the way, you can have them. They're yours. You see, it's communal fasting that prepares her for the relinquishing of her life. Now, friends, it's, it's in this moment where it's so important for us to hear and to see our King Jesus at work in and through this text. Because it's possible for us to be the sort of people, to be like justice warriors that are really concerned about the world and we're, we're not gonna sidestep distress, we're gonna press in and we'll even give our lives, we'll be martyrs, but to do it not with a heart of love. And 1 Corinthians 13 says this, you could give your life to be burned as a martyr and gain nothing. If it's not love that's motivating you, it's not worth anything. So the question is, how do we engage in this sort of work with hearts that are melting with love? We do it by setting our gaze on Jesus. And knowing, first off, that this text proves what he said. He said, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you lay it down, you will finally find it. If your life is going to be fruitful and purposeful, it has to be like a seed that's put down in the soil and it dies so that it can finally bear fruit. This is what Jesus taught, but he didn't just teach it, he lived it. He didn't sidestep the distress of the world. He saw it. He saw your sin and your rebellion and your running. And he came for you knowing, I know it's going to cost me dearly. Like it's going to shred me to my core to be separated from my father. Even to the point where he considers the alternative in this moment where he's going, oh, maybe, maybe it could just pass by me. Maybe this cup could pass by me. But he goes, no, no, no. I submit to your will, father. And as he counts the cost and considers the alternative and leans in, and the very moment where he needed the community to rally around and pray for him, just like Esther did, nobody was there. They all scattered. Nobody prayed. Nobody could stay awake. He was utterly alone, but he took the plunge anyway. And in his death and his resurrection, what he was saying is, I am the great royal deliverer. I am the one greater even than Esther that took my position on the throne to leverage all of my power and all of my wealth and all of my goodness, not for my own comfort, but for your blessing. And when you realize that you have been purchased with a price and your life is not your own, it's not yours. It's going to be over in a minute and it belongs to Jesus. So, oh, that we with our eyes set on Jesus, receiving his overwhelming and eternal love, that we would receive the invitation go, oh, it was never mine. I relinquish my life to you. Friends, I don't want to be left standing on the platform as the train pulls out, as we miss the adventure of our lives. Oh, that God would help us to be these sorts of people. Let's pray and ask that he would. So, Father, 
I am prone to insulate myself from pain because I am so committed to me. Would you forgive me? Would you forgive us? Take us on a journey over the next month plus to understand what it is to repent and to return to your heart and to relinquish our lives. We want to be those sorts of people. I pray that you would protect us from playing religious games. Protect us from being the sort of people that cling to our lives while, while being nice and superficially religious, just trying to maintain status quo. God, our lives are too short to live like that. So would you deliver us from it? I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that they would relinquish their lives to you. I pray for my friends in this room that have yet to be born again by the power of Jesus, that are new to this message of the love and the grace of Jesus. I pray that even today they would count the cost, consider the alternative, and that they would lay their lives down before you, experiencing real life in you. God, draw us to your heart. Use us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.